Hi friends, I'm Renee. And I'm Anna. And you're listening to Fangirl Happy Hour. actually very happy right now we are recording this on wednesday the 13th of december and this morning there were good news from alabama and then literally half an hour before we started recording this episode we got the news from patreon the good news from patreon instead of the bad news today we're going to bring you some feedback and updates which you've already had a preview of then we're going to discuss the prey of gods by nikki drayden we're continuing our Young Avengers read-through with Young Avengers style over substance. Then we're going to talk to the delightful Martha Wells, author of All Systems Red. And then we'll have some recommendations for you. Time for some feedback and updates. Anna, what do you got? I've got a couple of really cool things happening. Like every year, we run Smuggliver's during December, from December 1st to January 7th. January 7th is when, when we celebrate our blogiversary. And this year, it will be our 10th anniversary. Woohoo! It's amazing that we are still going. So every day this month, we have guest posts from authors, vloggers, bloggers, readers, Twitters, and everything in between. And it's been going great. I've already added a gazillion books to my TBR because all of these posts are actually lists. And, you know, those are the faves. Renee's faves. I love a good list. I know. There has been so many good ones. We also have a few books coming out between now and January 7th. We will be releasing special editions, special paper paperback editions of the Touchstone Trilogy by Andrea K. Host, which are self-published novels. And we read them a few years ago and we love them so much. We acquired the rights to publish the paperback version. So they'll be available very, very soon with these amazing covers by Kirby Fagan. And then we will be releasing our anthology of short stories that we published last year. Well, this year. And that would be the Gods and Monsters anthology. So a lot going on. You have a lot of stuff on your plate. So much. Probably everybody by now has heard about the next update, which is about Patreon. Recently, Patreon decided that they were going to change their fee structure. And instead of aggregating pledges, they were going to start charging fees on every single pledge instead of letting us, the creators, take the fee hit. And the outcry was swift and unrelenting. We lost several patrons and we we're very, very sad that Patreon did this to them and put them in that situation because we really believe in the support of our low-tier patrons. I was pretty gutted. I don't know how many of our listeners read our newsletter, but I wrote about it in our newsletter where I was like, sometimes it's hard to be poor because capitalism tells you you don't matter. Apparently my newsletter made Anna cry. Sorry, Anna. That's okay, Renee. Almost all of your new letters make me cry anyway. Your new letters are amazing. If you guys don't subscribe to it, you really should. I contribute very little, I'll admit. Although I included two links this time. Well, to be fair, you have 800 drops. 8,000. Are, are you back to 8,000 now? I am really back to 8,000 right now. I'm hoping to get Anna to do more because when Anna shares stuff, she shares really neat stuff and she writes really great things. So maybe in 2018. Maybe. The big news of today, as we record, is that Patreon has walked back their changes to the fee structure of their site. Yes, come back to us, little patrons. We want to welcome you back into our fold. Of course, we would love to see everybody who had to leave come back, but we also understand that Patreon really fucked this up a whole lot, and there is literally no reason to trust them. That's the thing. I wonder how many people just lost that trust and would just not come back because it's likely that they will try to address 
what they see as an issue some other way. And God knows what other way there will be. So if people have been waiting to see what Drip is going to do, which is the Kickstarter platform that is similar to Patreon, I mean, I completely understand too. It's pretty awful that they did this at this time of year, especially. Like, I'm not particularly religious, but I really like Christmas because I like the vibe of it. Let's be honest, the delicious food. My mother ordered a $100 prime rib for Christmas dinner. You're shaking your head. $100 of prime rib. Is that a lot of prime rib? That's a lot of fucking prime rib. Is prime rib a Christmas food? This year for mom it is. I think we ruined things and we gave her this drive to have her fill of all the food she loves. Because during Thanksgiving, we got a turkey. But the thing about Thanksgiving is that when you get a turkey, you get one turkey tail. Like there's one turkey tail with a turkey. Because the turkey only has one tail, obviously. It's this really fatty piece of meat. And she loves turkey tails. She will fight you for them. Anna's making this face, guys. I wish you could see it. It's great. This year, while we were out buying our turkey, we found a frozen package of turkey tails. Like, plural. There were like 10 of them in a package. And we bought them for her. And she made all these turkey tails up. And then she ate almost all of them. In like, two days. I don't even know what you are talking about exactly. But it just sounds wrong somehow. Oh my god, it's actually not the tail, but a gland that attaches the tail to the turkey's body. It's filled with oil that the turkey uses to print its feather. It's also cheap, but far from nutritious. Don't look at me. They gave me a bite of some of, of it, and I was like... Bleh. Okay, alright. I'm not gonna judge your mother's choices in food, because that's not nice. Feel free, because I do. <laughs> my father's favorite part of a chicken was the butt the cloaca which is literally the anus this got gross so fast <laughs> and so derailed i don't know how we got here <laughs> oh it was from prime rib to turkey to turkey tail to the butt crack of chickens somehow <laughs> well as per usual we're on brand with our derails what does this have to do with Patreon? Well, Patreon is the anus of a chicken. <laughs> I'm still real mad at them, guys. I'm still really, really mad at Patreon for doing specifically this to Patreons during this time of the year, doing this to us, and in general, being rich white dudes. So this is a great place to transition into our next update, Anna. Our 2017 survey is now live. It will be open until December 31st, and we encourage all of you to answer it. If you have answered previous surveys, it's okay. We have different questions this time, so you should totally come back. Also, we do have a whole section on Patreon, mostly so I, we could yell about it. Let's be real. But we also asked some questions about how we might diversify our funding streams in the future to rely less on one platform. And we would really appreciate your responses on that. Uh, especially if you don't support us on Patreon. Like, look at the list and see if there would be ways that you might want to support us that uh, we don't currently offer. Yeah. Also, you finally get to weigh in on the question of the year. Cheesecake. Pie. Cake. Or sandwich. Prey of Gods by Nikki Drayden is a book from Harper Voyager that was published in June of 2017. It tells the story of a far future South Africa and features a extremely diverse cast of characters. But boy, this book was bananas. It was trippy. In The Prey of Gods, there are several characters. One who can control your thoughts. One who can take your pain away and heal you, one who is super evil and has wings. There are a lot of queer characters in here who are heroic. Yeah. I was trying to think about what genre this fit in because there are both science fiction and fantasy elements to it. It reminded me very strongly of Charlie Jane Anders' 
all the birds in the sky. That's not the one that reminded me most of. Which one did it remind you of? Everfair. Also that, and I would also actually say Autonomous by Annalie Newitz. Oh, I haven't read that one yet. It has a lot of similarities. The main draw to this book for me was obviously robots. There are robots in this book. Robot pals, like actual robot pals. People have little sidekick robots that stand in for their phones. There is a burgeoning AI uprising. Yes. It's really hard to know how to discuss this book because it's so fucking bananas. I wrote a review of it for Kirkus and I was just rereading it and it like really struck me that sometimes I write really well, but that's not here nor there. I started by saying that this book was simultaneously surreal, weird, fun, and wholesome. The surreal elements, for example, there's a drug that people take in this book. And the drug could be seen even as a catalyst for all the different things that start happening to people. And you have two teenager best friends who take this drug and then they see themselves as they really are. One of them is a a crab and the other one is a dolphin and they have sex. And then you have the weirdness, which is everything else that happens in the book and how people address each other and how not only the drugs affect the people, but also how the reality of the world affects them. And that keeps changing because the more they see themselves or their real selves, they see that the world is not as they saw it up until this point. There's also an evil demon lady. Yeah, who is very, very ancient and is really fed up with humans and she just wants to take over and be powerful again. But there's also a little girl who discovers that she's also a goddess. So the main characters here are Namvala, who is a little girl who discovers that she is extremely special. There's Sydney, who is the evil demon. There is Muzi, who is a teenager who, after he takes this drug, realizes that he can control people's minds. And his semi-boyfriend, Elkin, who is an asshole. There is Councilman Wallace Stoker, who is also Felicity Lyon. There is Rhea, who is a pop star. And there is also this instance. One of my favorite characters, Clever 4-1. So cute. The great thing about this book that I didn't expect when I was going in was going to be like all the queer characters. I was super excited during the, like the first part of the book where suddenly two dudes are banging each other. That's literally the first chapter, right? The first few lines, yeah. And we have a trans character. And all the queer characters are heroic and they don't die. There is a moment there where I thought that, is she really gonna do this? I'm like, no, no! And then she doesn't. If you do hate watching queer characters die and not get to be heroes and survive, this would be the book for you because it's great. Uh, It was really refreshing. Yes. One thing I did get really confused by, this book is very fast-paced, and the sections, because it switches perspective to each character, are sometimes very short. Because it's so fast-paced, it's a little easy to get lost in the narrative. I got really confused about the whole plotline with the dick-dicks. Oh, yes. Even though it was really funny. I'm like, Nikki Drayton, I see you, and I approve of what you're doing with this word. I got very confused about what was happening with the dick dicks. There's something to do with the virus? Yeah, I know, but what? And I was just very confused. And I really do think it's just because the book is so readable. Like, the prose just flows really well. So it's easy to just bust through this book and maybe miss things because you're going so fast because the prose is so readable. The thing is, though, there's a lot going on here. And... At first, I was a little bit unsure because there are so many characters, so many viewpoints, and the chapters are very short, but a lot of things happen. So at the same time, the characters are really, really, really well-developed, but I'm not sure that the plot is as well-developed, although it does come together really well in the end. But I feel like there was enough here for a trilogy, for example. And I understand how that sounds weird that I'm saying that the characters are really well developed when I'm thinking that there should have been more. But their stories are really well done and really well rounded up. 
it's the sunshine problem. The characters get really well developed, and you have all this really amazing world building, but it's just packed into such a tight space that moves by very quickly that it's almost hard to like get a grip on what's happening. I mean, the overall plot of this novel is that an ancient goddess wants to take over the world. She has to unfortunately struggle against another another goddess who is younger and more idealistic and also contend with an AI uprising that she doesn't even realize is happening, which changes the game multiple times. So I just really liked the way that she melded science fiction and fantasy in this book. Because you have robots and you have gene modification. But you also have goddesses and people that fly. And you have the afterlife. Another thing for me is this is her debut novel. And up to this point, she was a short story writer. And I could tell it just felt every single chapter, they are so short, they felt like self-contained short stories. And it's the same thing that I felt reading Everfair. Like it's a bunch of short stories creating a whole. The same way I felt about Ken Liu's first novel too. And all of these started as very prolific short story writers. And I'm not saying this is a good or bad thing. I'm just, I think it's a characteristic of their writing. And I kind of like really like that. The format doesn't preclude the book from being good. It just changes the format and it sort of challenges the way we think about what a novel is and what a novel looks like. That's a good point. Yes, exactly that. Like the more I think about Everfair and the more I consider what Shaw was trying to do in that book specifically, the more I'm just like, this is really brilliant. The way that she divided this up and made these different time periods and these chapters self-contained to show you the growth over time. And I think that Drayden does a similar thing where she makes these really short, punchy scenes from each of these characters as they converge on each other. Because eventually they all do meet. Some of them team up together to save the world. Yeah. I really wanted to talk about Councilman Stoker or... Felicity. And her relationship with her mother. But to do that, we have to discuss some spoilers. So I'm going to put our spoiler tag here. So if you have not read this book, you should because it's bananas. And if you liked Everfair or All the Birds in the Sky or Autonomous, I really think you should check it out. Give it a shot. But don't go beyond this point because you will be spoiled. Like around halfway through this book, we realize that Wallace Stoker, who is a politician, is also doing drag on the side and has a stage presence as Felicity Lyon. As the book progresses, we also realize that she is struggling with gender identity, but also with having, which really surprised me, a goddess for a mother. That's the thing. I think Felicity was always there. I think that happened multiple times where she came out as trans and then her mother just simply erased her memory of it and she had to start over and over again until she got to the point where she comes out as trans and then, boom, goes back, becomes councilman again. But the last time that happens, which is the most recent time, the mom finally realizes, you know you know what, you keep doing this, you are Felicity. And then she no longer erases her, her daughter's memory. So Felicity remains Felicity, finally. So not only do we have somebody finally finding who they truly are, we also have this really restorative set of scenes between Felicity and her mother, because her mother is like a tree goddess. So we get to see the mother finally protect Felicity as she is, instead of trying to change her to fit into a mold, she lets her step into who she's always been and protects her, even though it costs her her life because Sydney, as an evil death demon, kills Felicity's mother. But I just really thought the whole thing was just really well done. I really liked it. At the beginning, the counselor is is thinking about running for the premiere of South Africa. At this time, that's his mother's position, but he wants to perform as Felicity. He wants to perform because right at this point in time, he's not, his, his mind has been erased. He's try, he's struggling to like balance politics and what he thinks of as drag. And so when he finally realizes, oh, I'm Felicity, he decides, oh, no, I don't have to choose. And so when Felicity finally comes into her own, 
at the end of the book, we see Felicity as a counselor preparing to run for premiere as herself. And I just really loved that it ended that way. Absolutely. The fact that at the very at the at the end Felicity got to be a hero and also got to finally live her life without being meddled with by parental expectations, which in some ways for me stood in for societal expectations. By erasing her memories, her mother is effectively saying, Do you know what? You are choosing this. And it's not a matter of choosing, it's a matter of who you are. And every time that happened, Felicity came out over and over and over again because Felicity was Felicity. I love that whole storyline. I loved it too. I also liked that Muzi, the other queer character, he got to be super heroic as like a giant robot. And saving he's saving his boyfriend too. I kinda I kinda really liked their romance, even though the boyfriend's a little bit of a jerk to start with. I like that the book as the book goes on, it kinda shows Elka and softening up a little. But holy shit, the scene at the end where his former bot, like... Destroys his body. And then they swap bodies. And then Muzi ends up without a body. And inside his bot. I really did like at the end that Drayden put like a positive spin on it. Because it's the future and there's lots of gene tech and super amazing science. Muzi bot, as the book calls him, saves some of Elkin's hair. And they take it to the you know, super secret lab in order to create Elkin a new body that Muzi can hang out in until they can find Mr. Tao and do a swap. I was like, it's the scene from the fifth element. That's exactly what I thought. I remember that scene from the fifth element where they put uh, Lilu back together. No. Yeah, at the very beginning of the fifth element, they like used some DNA to put her back together. Bone out. And this is exactly what I was picturing. Overall, I think I really liked this book. I maybe for some reason didn't expect to, but I think I just listened to too much of the commentary on it from other people. It's just reading it for myself. Huh. Was that bad? I just saw a lot of people get excited about it, but then sort of be like, oh, it wasn't what I expected. You had a moment like that because the cover is a little misleading. Those robots don't really exist in that way in the novel. The personal bots are much smaller. I think what the book was trying to show was like a representation of Muzibot and Nambolo's relationship. Possibly. Let's see what really super cool cover. The art is still amazing. Like her face is just amazing. And I really love the little umbrella. Poor Nambolo, right? Her mom. Well, her mom was raped too. Yeah, her mom had all this trauma. Mr. Tao raped her and Numbala was the result. Numbala never had a chance to have a family. It was just so sad, which is what makes the end of her story so wonderful to me. Oh yes, absolutely. Numbala gives them all another chance. And she's so idealistic and naive, but... Like a little child. But also so smart, too. And sometimes when you're writing child characters, it can be really hard to balance the child versus adult characterization. But I really think that Drayden nailed it here. Because Novella is still a kid, and she still reacts in a lot of ways like a kid. But she's also a goddess with all this immense power she's learning how to use. What a great book. Yeah, I really liked it, too. How many space bees would you give this book? Four. I would also give it four, mostly because I'm still really confused about that Dick Dick storyline. What's going on? I need to reread the book, I guess. I'll give it four because even though I liked it because it was fragmented, at some points it just felt too fragmented. It's weird. Lots of great character work, but the world itself could have used a little bit more development. I think so, yeah. But still a really great novel. Avengers Volume 1 Style Over Substance is by Kirion Gillen and Jamie McKelvey. They are the same team that does Wiccan and Divine now, another comic that we like. This is a reboot of the Young Avengers. We've been reading the Young Avengers comics for a few years now, it feels like. It feels like we're slowly getting through it. <laughs> but this is the reboot that everybody got excited about when we said that we were reading The Young Avengers because everybody seems to love this reboot in particular. And I have to say, I think I agree with them. 
I was so confused, Renee. I was so confused by what the fuck was happening. Welcome to comics. So I'm not so sure. I don't blame you because I was confused until I just went fuck it because I didn't understand what Loki was doing there. No, child Loki. I was like, what's happening? I didn't understand where America came from. I don't understand where Tommy went. Where is Iron Patriot? Nobody even mentions him. He didn't die in the last issue, did he? It's a mystery. It's an interdimensional reboot because America Chavez and Marvel Boy come from a different reality or they can actually travel between dimensions. Like I said, if there was a confusing part, I was like, eh, whatever. I mostly focused on the story in the book itself, which was that Billy casts a spell to help Teddy because Teddy was sad because his mom died. And they're not superheroing anymore. They've agreed to stop. But Teddy doesn't stop because he doesn't really have anything else besides Billy because Billy suddenly has, like, extra parents. But he's still moping around. Teddy doesn't really have anything except for superheroing. So he's uh, pretending to be Spider-Man. So Billy tries to help by bringing Billy's mom back from another timeline. But it doesn't go as expected. And he accidentally brings an evil parasite instead. Which sets up a chain of events that affects pretty much every single adult and also every single one of the Young Avengers. And it also brings Loki and America Chavez and Marvel Boy to this particular timeline. And also we get Kate back. Kate, I love Kate. She's great. They are a little bit, they are a little bit older now, right? So they look older they behave older too they lost so much yes it feels like a little bit older young avengers so the writer took it in a more adult direction he's having them grow up a little bit more but they're still dealing with sort of irresponsible kid problems if we want to call bringing a interdimensional parasite into your world to ooze all over your family is an irresponsible choice i'm just like that's a little bit of an understatement i think I do like Billy and Teddy's relationship here. The best part about this book for me was Teenage Loki, except I didn't understand why he was there, but he was still my favorite part. But it's not really Teenage Loki. It's old Loki that killed Teenage Loki, took over his body, but Teenage Loki's ghost or his consciousness is still there. So his newfound goodness is making its way inside Loki, so Loki can't be as bad. It's an amalgamation of both of them. And it was so cute, I loved him. I love Loki, sorry, I know he's a killer. Shame. It's okay, Loki was redeemed in Thor Ragnarok, so it's fine. You can like him again. He wasn't! He's a trickster god, we cannot talk about Thor, we will fight. (laughs) Anyway... I love Loki. I love Loki. It's fun to like Loki. Everybody likes Loki. So he was my favorite part of this comic. I was like a little bit conflicted about Billy and Teddy's relationship. Even though it was cute and they were so there for each other, so devoted, but it also felt really intense. And I'm just going to take it back because it felt very teenager and that's exactly what they are. It's fine. The comic did an okay job at showing that they're teenagers in a relationship because they suck at communication. And you have to communicate with your partner. You have to. You can't, like, lie to them about sneaking around doing secret superhero stuff. You can't not tell them, oh, hey, I'm about to pull in your mom from another dimension. But, oops, it's not actually your mom, so I'm going to inadvertently cause you extra pain. It's also part of the narrative of, of the plot, specific plot line here because... Teddy is still superheroing. It says something about who he thinks he is, and that is he's a hero. And the whole volume is about that to the point where they go through this whole thing to the end when they all say, you know what, we should really go back to being the Young Avengers because that's who we are. We are heroes. That's the goal that Loki had from the very beginning. He wanted to get the Young Avengers back together. Yeah. I also like the art on this a whole lot. I do really like McKelvey's art in general. I think it's very clean and it's very expressive. I also like the 
more like, creative spreads that they did where you would have Loki sneaking Billy and Teddy out of like a box prison, like an interdimensional prison. That was my favorite spread of the whole thing. It was so cleverly done. And then you have a scene where Novar or Marble Boy or whatever his name is takes uh, out an entire room of bad guys. He actually uses the same sort of funny asides that Kate and Hawkeye do. So he embraces that because he's talking about Hawkeye there. I don't know where that character comes from. Like, I think I suffered a little bit from not really knowing some of these characters' backstories. Like, I don't know a lot about Novar's backstory. I don't know a ton about America's backstory. I have never read the the places where they were introduced in this continuity specifically. So that can be kind of a struggle for somebody coming new to this comic. I liked it, though. I thought it was fun to read. I liked the plot of them trying to run away from their resurrected fake parents. However, I was not excited about the sudden suicide attempt. Yeah. It was sudden, and then it just went away. Like, if Billy is seriously considering suicide to, like, save people, dear comic, if you're gonna put that in this book, you kinda have to handle it better. I agree. As Teddy points out, Billy has like two sets of parents and things are going good and his boyfriend gets to live in his house with him. So why is he so upset? Like, why is he so sad? That's a good point. So is... Mm. Are we going to explore this? He could be depressed. I also want to know where his brother is. But overall, I liked it. I liked it, but I was very confused. And that just pushed me off the narrative so many times. Well, I'm giving this... Three space bees in a jar of honey. I'm giving just three space bees. And that makes me really sad because we keep reading Young Avengers. But did we ever really love any of them? There was one that I really there was one that I really liked at the very beginning. Yeah. But I think that's been it. It hasn't lived up to it so far. I love the idea of the Young Avengers. This particular instance maybe got overhyped. Maybe. Because they're working within a certain context. I like Wicked and Divine, okay. But they're working in a Marvel context where they have to follow continuity, follow certain characterizations. They probably have guidelines. So are we continue to read them? I'd like to see if the second volume makes things more clear. So I think maybe we should give it one more volume and then see. I agree. Sorry, Young Avengers fans. I feel like we let you down. Today, we are thrilled to have Martha Wells on the show. Martha has written several novels, including The Element of Fire, Wheel of the Infinite, City of Bonds, and The Cloud Roads. She's also the author of one of our favorite novellas this year, All Sisters Bread. That's right, we have the creator of Murderbot on Fangirl Happy Hour right now. Welcome, Martha. Well, thank you for having me. It is a pleasure. Um, Martha, how long have you been writing? Since I can remember back in elementary school, I always liked, I watched Godzilla movies and I would write Godzilla fanfic and then draw big giant maps of Monster Island and things like that. So I can't remember when I wanted to be a writer, but reading was always my favorite thing to do. And by the time I went to college, I was actively wanting to become a writer that I thought I might major in journalism, but I wasn't really sure what to do, you know, and then I got a, um, there was a local science fiction fantasy group, uh, a student-run group at the university, and I ended up taking a class in science fiction writing from them that was run by Stephen Gould, uh, who's also, yeah, who wrote Jumper. Um, so that was kind of my introduction to professional fiction writing and also um, kind of fandom in a lot of ways. We have to go back to the very beginning where you talked about Godzilla. Yeah. <laughs> you were writing Godzilla fanfic, and I was writing Mario and Luigi fanfic. Oh. We were both inspired by Japan to write fanfic. Yes. <laughs> and I found this fascinating because I was from, like, the rural south. That's super, super cute. Godzilla fanfic. Do you still have that? Did you keep it? Oh, no. I don't know what happened to all those papers. I'm, I probably got rid of them a long time ago. I know, my, I know my mother was trying to save them for me for a while, but I was also into really into Land of the Giants. Because we had a, an independent TV station, it would show like a, 
you know, kind of a scary movie, uh, you know, a monster movie, Godzilla or something, or, you know, some other kind of scary movie. And then it would show like Lost in Space and Land of the Giants. And Land of the Giants was like my first fandom. I think that was like my favorite show. It's an old, uh, I think it was Irwin Allen. He was the same guy that did, oh, about the submarine. And he did a, a lot of unusual for this time period science fiction shows but it was one of them it was about people who were uh, near future on a not really a spaceship but more like a a kind of a shuttle that would hit orbit to go from place to place on earth and something it's it's on a trip with passengers and something happens and they they crash land on this planet where it's just like our world except a little bit more primitive but everybody's a giant and they're tiny little people and they have to hide and and try to fix the ship and get home and I never heard of this. Yeah, it was great, especially if you're like 10 years old. It's like the, it was like the best thing ever. Erwin Allen also created The Poseidon Adventure and Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Yeah, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea was the one I was thinking of. So I know there's actually a small fandom for that that was still around at least like about 10 years ago. So when you say that you were part of that fandom, did you go to conventions or how, how did you interact with the other fans at that point in time? At that time, there really wasn't any way to do it. You know, there was no internet back then. And the first convention I went to, I think I was a sophomore or junior in high school. And I went to, I got my parents to take me to ArmadilloCon in Austin. And it was very small at that point. It was probably, I don't know, maybe 100 people. And it was held in a, a small hotel. And you could buy fandom stuff in the dealer's room. But, you know, there was no eBay or anything like that. And I didn't have any money to get to conventions any place. And And I didn't really know anything about actually media fandom conventions. Mm -hmm. I didn't find out about that until Star Wars came out and I kind of stumbled on an ad for a Star Wars fanzine in the back of Starlog magazine. They used to have little fanish personal ads for things like that that people could get. You know, the advertising in the back of the fanzine then leads you to other fanzines and that's how you used to be able to find other fans and do and kind of start corresponding with people and reading fanfic. It's so much easier now where you can just like look it up on the internet. It's really strange to think about that time and how hard it was to connect with other people who were in fandom. So is that one of the biggest changes that you have seen throughout your career and your life as a fan and as an author, as an author? Is that the biggest difference that you can see the way that you interact with other fans or there are other things that you can think of? Well, I, th I think it would be one of the biggest differences is just having the internet and having that availability of information when you used to have to just, you know, they had Writer's Digest books in the library and you kind of have to work off that and you couldn't look up agents. It was harder to look up agents and, and you couldn't go read someone's blog and you couldn't find fanfic. And I think people were a lot more vulnerable. There's a lot of new scams aimed at beginning writers online, but back then when people didn't even know those kind of things existed, I think you were more likely to fall prey to them because at least now there's so many information things out there like writer beware. It's trying to help people and steer you away from the scam artists and stuff. So yeah, I think I, I really can't think of anything else that's changed both fandom and the publishing landscape as much as the internet. What year did your first book come out? 1993. Have you been parallel as a professional writer as well as like a fanfic writer? Uh, yeah, for a while. And it was kind of the fanfic can became off and on, you know, because you... Time. Yeah, the time becomes a big deal. And um, as your friends kind of uh, go out of it and start doing other things, you don't have as much motivation to keep up with it. I was a big Star Wars fan for a long time. And, and you know, for a while there, there was just... Star Wars fanfic was kind of slow to get online because there was no new movies or anything. And so, you know, people were big fans of the books. But then when the prequels came out, of course, there was a big resurgence, which is kind of fun to watch. What fandoms did you take part in? It was Star Wars. I was Star Wars for a long time. And then Hercules Legendary Journeys and Xena and Stargate Atlantis. Ah, uh, Stargate Atlantis. So we shared a fandom. Oh, really? Oh, cool. I was sort of on the edges of Stargate and Lennis fandom. I think I wrote like one piece of fanfic that did sort of well, like middling well. I had gone from a Final Fantasy fanfic writer, like the video games that were not super popular, to writing that one fanfic and getting like four pages of comments. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, this is so much attention. Those were the heady live journal days when 
big fandoms got so much attention. It was crazy. Yeah, Stargate Atlantis fandom was great, though. People were so creative in that fandom. And you went on to actually write some tie-in novels. Yeah, I did two Stargate Atlantis tie-in novels because a friend of mine, Rachel Kane, had done a Stargate SG-1 novel. And she recommended to me that I, I ended up doing two, the two Stargate Atlantis ones which was a lot of fun. It was really the first time I'd done anything like that. It was like, you know, getting paid to watch TV. and <laughs> Living your best life, yeah. How was it different than writing fanfic? You have to stick with the canon. In fanfic, I think you feel a little more free to come up with your own stuff and do, you know, even if you're not trying to do an alternate universe, you can add your own spin on stuff and be more adventurous. And with a tie-in, you have to really stick with the canon. I think you can put your own spin on it, but you have to kind of make it so the people who are actually just watching the show will enjoy it too and will not, you know, you have to stick with the main characters. You can't invent as many original characters as you might. And, uh, you know, you want to try to get the actors' voices right and make it feel like a much more expansive version of the show. Like if the show had ulti- you know, unlimited time and unlimited budget. That's super cool. Yeah, it is, actually. It was a lot of fun. I really loved that fandom and I really loved that show. Anna has not seen any Stargate except the movie and she hated it. <laughs> yeah, there was stuff they did in the movie. It's like I wish they had pretended didn't exist in the show. But yeah, that was a fun show. Yeah, I preferred the television universe to the film universe. Oh, yeah, I did too. Except for maybe Stargate Universe. I'm not sure how I feel about Stargate Universe even now. I didn't watch any of it. I was mad that Stargate Atlantis was canceled because of it. I think about like early days controversies in fandoms, and I remember that specific controversy where the creator just basically insulted the fans of Stargate Atlantis. We were too old and too female to get their new vision was the impression I got. So I'm like, okay, I'm out. And I was really sad about it because John Scalzi did consulting for Stargate Universe. I really just wish they had let him write it because I bet I would have liked it more. It would have been it would have been good then. But yeah. Are you in any fandoms right now? Uh, I'm kind of sort of starting to really get into The Flash. I've been watching it since it's come on, and it's got some things about it that I really like. It's got the found family aspect, but it's also got what I think is kind of different is where you know people are adventuring, are going on adventures with their actual family members, which you don't usually see very often because Barry's adopted dad was with is part of the main is part of the main group, and then there's another brother, and and then Iris was he was raised with Iris as his sister basically, and 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 then they have kind of the found family group. So it's got a lot of things like that that I kind of really like. And it's also lighter and more funny than Green Arrow. And not it's not more it's not lighter than Legends of Tomorrow, which is kind of doing its own unique, strange thing over there. But yeah, I just really like what it's doing and the kind of stories they do. The, I watched The Flash last year in four days, the first season. It was amazing. I loved it. Did you see Crisis on Earth X? I did not see that one. They did a crossover before, but it wasn't a lot of fun. It was it was okay, but it felt very awkwardly. The four shows, they did Supergirl, Green Arrow, Flash, and Legends of Tomorrow, and they were kind of awkwardly put together. And in the second crossover, it's four hours of crossover. They, they didn't feel separated by show, where all the people are going to Barry and Iris's wedding they're attacked by uh, Nazis from another Earth. It was just great. I enjoyed it a lot. I keep hearing things about all of these shows, but I don't watch any of them. And I really do need to. I think I think all of them are on Netflix now. I don't think they have the most recent season. They are not in the UK, though. Oh, that sucks. That's the thing. At least not yet. I was actually in Prague for a conference, and they were all in Prague's Netflix. And I was so tempted to start watching, but then I thought, what's the point? Because I'm going to go back home and I won't be able to. You know, you'll get addicted to it and then not be able to get it. Exactly. And it's just so weird the way that these things work because I left here on Wednesday morning and I finished watching season one of Killjoys. And then I said, oh, great, I'm going to arrive in Prague. I'm going to go to the hotel and I'm going to start watching season two because it ended in a horrible cliffhanger. And then I arrived in Prague and no, Killjoy season two is not there (laughs) and i'm like oh damn it yeah you would think that these companies would realize that we are now a global international media environment well i think it's probably like the publishers where they want to sell it to all the markets but there's just things in the way the other day i wanted to buy a book that was out in the u.s 
It was uh, Malinda Lowe's A Line in the Dark. And I wanted to buy the hardcover here in the UK. There was just no way of doing that. I had to wait for weeks. Yeah, that's yeah. one of the things authors can't do anything about. There's a lot of things authors can't do anything about, but that we get blamed for. That is unfortunate, indeed. Yeah. We will never blame you. We understand. Okay. Well, I understand because Anna teaches me all these publisher tricks and hardships. Well, I try to. Well, you try. Are you a full-time writer, Martha? Yes. Oh. Since about 2006. That's cool. Do you like it? Yeah. It's nice having Twitter and the internet where I can kind of, I don't talk a lot on Twitter, but I can see other writers talking. So it feels a little bit like a water cooler, like you're not sitting alone in a house that you do yeah. have uh, you know, access to other people. It gets a bit weird, especially around Christmas when all your friends are having, you know, Christmas lunches with for work and Christmas parties and stuff. And you basically have nothing <laughs> except yourself. Do you have any writing groups around you or something like that? Not really. Um, I don't have any. I have friends in town, but no uh, friends, writing friends, kind of. Most of them would be living in Austin or, or Houston. I see them at, when we do conventions and go up there for events and all that and visit and all, everything, but it's not a daily basis or anything like that. As a lady writer that started writing in 1993, how do you see the field in terms of being a woman writer? It kind of fluctuates a lot because in the 90s, I didn't have as much awareness of how difficult it was for women Again, because you're not seeing th the bigger nature of things on the internet, you're kind of like more isolated in your own groups. And in Texas, there was always a, a huge number of women in fandom and in professional writing. And, you know, most of the time when I was going to conventions or when we were running, I was running conventions in college, it was like most of the people in the, in the fandom group who were making the decisions and doing a lot of the work were women. Somebody has asked me this before, and my impression is really that actually things have gotten worse for women writers and probably women fans, too, over maybe about the past 10 years or so, certainly since around 2000. And that is so bizarre, isn't it? Yeah, we have this impression that things always go from bad to good. Things always get better as time goes on. And it's kind of, it's really not true. And, and that goes with what you said in your speech recently too, right? Because it's about people being made invisible rather than being yeah. visible. Yeah. Because people still believe that pulps were all male. I mean, you know, I talked about in the speech of hearing that um, C.L. Moore was like the woman writer. And it's like, no, even for Weird Tales alone, there was probably, I forget the statistics. It was something like, well, I know there's like over 100 female writers and poets and people writing letters to the magazine and having their letters printed. And a lot of them were not using uh, pseudonyms and were not using their initials. And it's sort of they've all just been not only not just forgotten as writers, but basically erased from history with the idea repeated over and over again, though there were no women writers at the time, except maybe one, one or two. What do you think caused that? It's really weird. I really don't know. The incident I've read the most about is the women movie writers in silent era Hollywood and how the writer that it's Carrie Beauchamp, her book Without Lying Down goes into the, you know, is about this. If I'm remembering right, what she was thinking it was is when the big money corporations came in to Hollywood, as opposed to having wealthy individuals owning and financing all these little studios. When the, the big companies came in, it homogenized everything. And that included getting rid of a lot of the women who were writers and producers and directors. So I don't know. I don't really know what causes, but that's probably a big factor controlled by a small number of people instead of having a lot of basically diverse individuals out there doing different things and having control over their own area. It's capitalism again. Basically, yeah. It's ruining everything. When I first got active in science fiction and fantasy fandom online back in 2008, I was just really disturbed by some of the rhetoric that I saw. Not just, oh, women don't write science fiction and fantasy, but women can't write science fiction and fantasy. It's not good. It's not quality writing. And it was really frustrating, especially to watch people who didn't know about the history come into the field and just accept that as... As fact, yeah. It's like if you repeat a lie enough, it becomes true. Yeah, they're contributing to the erasure whether they know it or not. And I remember just being really frustrated. And I did a project about reviews where I would look at all the popular blogs and then look at their reviews and the gender balance of their reviews. And what I found was that women just don't get reviewed. 
And the reasons for that were nonsense. Like, oh, well, I just prefer men. Oh, I don't see gender. Whatever. I really think that if I did that same project today, that I would find that it would be worse. Do you think? Blogs don't really exist in the same way. The conversation has been diffused across social media. But I really think it would be worse. Because if they weren't getting reviewed as social media changed, I feel like we would just see more men getting attention via whatever social media versus women. The problem would be repeated, but in the new way that we talk about books, like on Twitter or on YouTube, because BookTube is a thing. And on BookTube, I don't really ever see BookTubers talk about the gender balance of what they're reading. I see a lot of discussion about race, but I don't see a lot of discussion about gender some platforms are making an actual effort, like you have Tor, and they do a lot of good work. But otherwise, I just some, sometimes get really discouraged when I look at the field and the way that women's books are talked about, or in this case, not talked about. Yeah, I get especially frustrated when I see people who otherwise seem well-read sit there and say, why won't science fiction and fantasy ever write this kind of story? And it's the kind of story people have been writing since the 80s, but the people who have been writing it are women. And when people say that, what they really mean is, why won't my favorite white straight man writer <laughs> write this kind of story? And it, gets, it just gets very frustrating. And like they're so, I mean, I thought this was especially a really exciting year for science fiction and fantasy. There were so many good books out at the World Fantasy Convention because I was the Toastmaster. All the, the guests of honor got one of or got offered one of every copy of every book the publishers contributed. So instead of the book bag of like 12 books, we got like three boxes of books. Wow. Yeah, it was a lot. <laughs> I, I kind of weeded it down to one box because we even, we drove and I still didn't think we had room for this box in our car. I got Jade City by Fonda Lee, which was incredible. And Under the Pendulum Sun by Jeanette Ng, which was incredible. And oh, my favorite was The Tiger's Daughter by Kay, I think it's Arsenault, Arsenault or Arsenault Rivera. And that was, I thought, one of the best uh, single-volume fantasies I'd ever read in my life. That book just totally captured me. What's the name again? The Tiger's Daughter. That went completely under my radar. Yeah, it was gorgeous. It's a, everything about it, the, the world building. And then, you know, the Tor.com novellas, J.Y. Yang, her two novellas. I think it's The Red Threads of Fortune and um, The Black Tides of Heaven. Was that? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Those were both the world building and that was just in both those were just off the hook. Those are it was so original and exciting. And there's just been so much so many good novellas and novels out. And, you know, and I haven't even read that much, I feel like. But the stuff that was I've read has just been also great. And I thought this is such an exciting year. And then there's so many people standing around basically saying, oh, no, it doesn't exist. These, these books don't exist. Yeah, it's so frustrating. But speaking of awesome tour novellas, you wrote an awesome tour novella. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yes, this is a portion of the show where we shower you with praise because we loved your story of Murderbot. I actually wrote a really long review, which later somebody told me I was overthinking it. I'm like, no, I'm not. It's thoughtful. <laughs> and going back to what you said that you wrote tying novels with Stargate. What I had read from you before reading All Systems Red was The Wheel of the Infinite, and I read The Cloud Roads and all the other books in the Raxura. And of course, those are all fantasy. And then I read All Systems Red, and I was like, well, this is science fiction. But now knowing that you actually, you were already writing science fiction when you were writing fan fiction and the tiny novels so it's really a back and forth for you not really a from one thing to another yeah um i've always loved science fiction as well as fantasy and actually when i was growing up reading in the in the 70s there wasn't as much separation between the two of them there was a lot more they're calling it different things now but kind of like science fantasy or sword and planet where you have basically science fiction with kind of fantasy elements to it, which is, is which you can make a big case that that's what the books of the Raxura are, mm. or fantasy that has kind of science fictional world building, which is what Andre Norton used to do a lot. That kind of book was a lot more common, I think, I guess, in the 70s and 80s. 
But yeah, I've always read both and I've always liked both. It was just that I kind of got pigeonholed as a fantasy writer for a long time. But this was the idea. When I got the idea, it was very, it was very much a science fiction idea where basically a science fiction world was the best way to tell it. Well, I am a big fan of Robot Pals. I love Robot Pals. They're my favorite. It's my brand. I don't like the, ev- the evil robots that capitalism is trying to install in society. Those are not Robot Pals. No. But... I went into All Systems Red. I didn't really know what to expect because, like, Anna had only really read your fantasy novels. I was just so charmed by the narrative voice. And a lot of reviews have talked about the narrative voice of this character and how both human but not Murderbot sounds. I am super interested to know how you came up with that narrative voice in particular. Well, I think I'd had a lot of experience, or seven seven books worth of experience of writing alien characters with the Raxura. So that really helped a lot in kind of being able to get into an alien mindset. And what I really wanted to write was a, because you see a lot of the robot that wants to be human or the AI that wants to be human. And I wanted to write an AI that did not want to be human and that almost made its own little culture <laughs> all by itself. When the plot came to me, the voice just kind of came together with that. I don't know, I didn't have a big plan when I went into it. I just kind of started, oh, I'll just write this fun little robot story. And actually, it was originally a short story. It was going to have a sad ending. And then the more I looked at it, I thought, well, it's going to be at least 10,000 words, and that's not a very good length for a short story. I'll make it longer. And making it longer, I kind of got further and further away from the idea of a sad ending, because when I spend you know, that much time with characters, it just you, know, you, just, you don't want to kill off everybody in the end or anything like that. And I thought, oh, yeah, I could submit it as a novella to tour, and, and that's what happened. Well, I'm so glad and so pleased that you changed your mind. And I don't think that you necessarily didn't have a sad ending, because I think the ending, which I will not spoil for people who had not read it, although if you're listening to this, go read it immediately. It's sad, but not in the, oh, rocks fall, everyone dies way. It's sad in a totally different way, which I found realistic, but not grim. This year, especially, grim. It's just not my bag. I don't need it. But this I found to just be a delight, even though it was sort of sad. It was more like bittersweet. There's three more stories written. Um, artificial Excellent. Con- yeah, Artificial Condition is the next one. And it starts pretty quickly after the first one ends. And it comes out in May. And then Rogue Protocol comes out in August. And I'm actually working on the revision now for the fourth one, which is Exit Strategy, which I think is also going to come out next year. I thought that the second one came out in January. It originally did, but because it did so well, I'm not entirely sure how they decided this, but it's going to go through the Tor Books distribution system instead of just the Tor.com distribution system, which means it'll be available in more bookstores. That's amazing. It's going to be in hardcover the, instead of paperback, and it's going to, which is going to be a pain because it won't match the first paperback. And I know people, when you get, you like to have a match, they had to move it back a little bit to May to make that happen. I've just solved that dilemma by buying ebooks and then waiting until the paperbacks come out and getting all the paperbacks. That's how I solved the hardback dilemma. And I'd also love it if they did an, a single edition where they put all four of them together. I think that yeah, would be... Yeah, that would be really cool. Dear Tor, that's an idea. Do it. I will buy it. Once we f- figured out that it had moved, because we were all very excited about it. So in my Slack group, we discovered that it had been moved to May and there was like a period of mourning. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're like, oh no, we have to wait. Well, it'll be interesting because I've never had three major things like that come out in one year. I've had to, in this year, actually, I had The Harbors of the Sun came out. The Last Raxura book came out in July, a couple months after Murderbot. So that was kind of exciting. Anna, do you have any other questions? I have one very important question. Oh, no. (laughs) We have had a recurring conversation in this podcast, and it's a very important question. Are you ready? Okay. (laughs) Is cheesecake a pie? Or a cake? You know, my first impulse is to say cake, but really, it is really a pie, isn't it? We don't know. What about key lime pie, which is just basically a different sort of cheesecake that's called a pie. It's a pie, yes. But a cheesecake but is called a cake. It doesn't have a sponge. I would think that the technical definition of cake would involve the, the, the actual sponge. So. And like he calls it a sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> that was a wrench in that question. That was amazing, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> How? <laughs> it's an open-faced sandwich, yeah. Yeah, it has the base, it has a kind of like the bread thing, and then the filling. When you ask that question in the future, you need to include, is it a pie, is it a cake, or is it a sandwich? Maybe. I can't believe you ask everybody this question. Forever. It's our question now. So where can people find you online? My website is MarthaWells.com. And that's got links to like my Twitter feed. And uh, I'm mostly on Twitter now. I have a, I have a, I still have a journal at Dream With. I haven't been posting much in the past few weeks because I'm, because I'm just, I'm so busy. I usually try to do a kind of a roundup of new books, that especially books by women authors and POC authors and books that are obscure. That's under my book rec tag. I'm mostly on Twitter and mostly on my journal and there's links to them on the website. Awesome. So thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about a myriad of topics. Thank you for inviting me. I had a great time. And we are very excited about Artificial Condition, which comes out in May. In May. (laughs) We'll be there on release day. Time for some recommendations. Anna, hit me. I started watching Killjoys, which is a Canadian science fiction TV show currently on Netflix. And it's super fun. So it's a find the future. Humans are traveling the galaxies. And there is this planet that has this evil corporation that takes care of everything called the company. But then you have independent people called Killjoys that take on contracts to go and collect people or arrest people. It starts with two of them working together. They are best friends, a woman and a guy. And it's super great because they are really, really, really just friends. And it's really rare to see this in television or movies or etc. So they have a really great relationship. And she is the leader and the super strong fighter. And he's the tech guy. And to mix things up a little bit, they go and rescue his brother, who is the typical bad boy with a tormented past. That's my favorite trope. And I'm already in love with this guy from the moment he walks into the screen. But the show really subverts a lot of things. And the first season ended in a horrible cliffhanger, and I haven't been able to start season two yet. But it's there. It's on Netflix. I need to watch it. And it has just been renewed for a fourth season, so it's doing well. I think you would love it. I should try it. What about you? What's your rec? So, backstory to my recommendation. We do show notes every episode, so like we know the order we're going to talk about things in. To troll Anna, I wrote in Iron Fist. And her reaction in the sheet, it's beautiful. (laughs) Like, chef's kiss moment beautiful. I just did a double take when I read it and I was like, this cannot be true. Is it true, Renee? Is that what's true? Is that what you're recommending? I'm trolling everybody. I'm not recommending Iron Fist. Although I have been watching it. I know. Don't. I know. It's bad. It's so bad. My actual rec is for something much better, much more quality, and more delicious. Yes, it's the great British Bake Off. Yes! I had never really heard of the show and I was looking for some like feel good TV and somebody was like hey you should watch The Great British Bake Off because it's super easygoing and everybody is supportive and there's hugging and I was like okay I'll give it a shot even though I hate most cooking shows because everybody's so mean and it's too tense for me I don't like it but that's American cooking shows The Great British Bake Off is so nice Everybody's so nice to each other and they help each other. Oh, it's so great. I love Mary Berry and Paul Hollywood's okay, but his long silent stares just are starting to make me nervous whenever I see them. And I'm not even cooking anything. And the two presenters. I started with Netflix, US Netflix. And in US Netflix, the first season is actually like season five in the UK. So uh, the first season I ever watched featured Ian, who threw his entire cake or whatever in the garbage can. Mm, I remember that. That was dramatic. Somebody told me that it became like national news and a national scandal. And people were like accusing Diana of sabotage. (laughs) But the show is generally not that dramatic. 
but all the other seasons that I've watched have been really nice, although I'll always disagree with who wins. Well, to all the people who recommended The Great British Bake Off to me, I'm sorry it took me so long. You were all right. It is super charming. If you like watching people make things and like watching supportive environments and get really, really tense over American cooking shows where everybody is mean and nasty and backstabby to each other in the commentary, then The Great British Bake Off might be for you. Okay, Anna, tell everybody what we're going to talk about next time. May the force be with us. We'll be discussing The Last Jedi. If you have any thoughts, send them to us at fangirlhappyhour at gmail.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter at fangirlpodcast. Our show art is by Ira and our transcripts are by Susan. You can read all the available transcripts at fangirlhappyhour.com. Our segment break music is by Chucky Beats and Boxcat Games. Our annual survey is live on this very internet. We would love your thoughts and especially your wrecks. Also, this year I fixed it so there's no way my beautiful bell curves can be broken on the question of how many books people read per year. I plan for this. And now that we can actually use Patreon again for reels, why not support us? Have a snack, drink some water, and tell one creator you love something that they made. Thanks for listening, Space Bees. See you next episode. name <laughs> in other good news our annual annual <laughs> so i'm 10 years old it's fine so am i our our annual sur- no stop laughing and then talk <laughs> do you know his name do you know his name in norse Wait, is that the language? No, North myth. You would say North North mythology. What's his name in ruins? Do you know that one? <laughs> in ruins. No. Oh well, I thought you might since you since you apparently learned them. Oh right, no, no, I don't. Do I? <laughs> well, you failed your you failed your ruins quiz, but it's okay. Okay. Oh no! What have I started? Just punched myself in the face.